0: Welcome to our podcast series, Talking With Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. Welcome to season three of the Talking With Traders podcast series with me, Garth McKenzie. Backed by popular demand following the first two seasons, I'll bring you a string of interviews over the next 10 weeks with a number of seasoned traders in my network to give you a first-hand insight into how they trade the world's financial markets so successfully. The first two seasons of this podcast have had over 20,000 downloads of the interviews, so I've used this traction to seek greater global reach for the third season. A special word of thanks must go to our sponsors, IG Markets, for continuing to fund this podcast and to allow it to flourish. In Season 3 of Talking with Traders, I've gone beyond the borders of South Africa to speak to traders from across the globe. I'll ask pertinent questions of each of my guests to really try and get them to open up about what makes them consistently successful when it comes to taking on the world's financial markets. Joining me on today's episode of Talking With Traders is Sean Ashton. I've known Sean for a number of years from my time in the markets in South Africa. He is now the manager of the Sierra Global Fund, which is a fund that's based in Mauritius. It's a long-only fund, and um, Sean is now applying his skill to managing money in that respect. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for joining with me. Thank you, Garth. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to speak to you again. For sure. um, as I always do with these podcasts, Sean, I want to get right back to the early part of your life and what got you involved in the market in the first place. And if you could tell us just a little bit about your background and what path has your career followed from those early years to where you are now? Sure. So I guess
1: I was fortunate in the sense that both of my parents were in the stock breaking and fund management game from uh, from when I was a very uh, very young age. And so I got exposed to a lot of dinner time industry conversation from, from pretty early on. Um, but I actually started out studying a computer science degree in my undergraduate and realized that that wasn't for me. Uh, I decided to switch to an economics and finance major. And that's when the switch went off inside of me. And that's, that's really when I realized that's what was... What interested me um, at the time my dad was working at uh, boe securities which was around 2001 or 2000 and he helped me secure a temporary holiday job while i was completing my studies uh where i basically just assisted the the then quant analyst with building financial data sets for for her models while, I, while she was working there um, and i was completing my studies through unisa so From that point on, I landed up uh, working at Netcore Securities. If you remember, BOE ultimately became Netcore Securities when they were bought out. So you would know that well. Um, And so I I then, I suppose, graduated into covering uh, some industrial stocks as a sell side analyst uh, within that business. And it was the hotels and leisure industry that I covered. Uh, I was quite, uh, I suppose, fortunate or it was fortuitous that I managed to get a secure number one rating in that sector. In the first year which was great i think it was one of the younger analysts to uh, to get number one in that sector um and then uh, but I, I guess the the one thing that i always found quite interesting or i guess challenging was that observing other career analysts uh covering stocks within their own sectors they never really or many of them never really traded with their own money and i was always interested in having some skin in the game running a pa account um, even if it wasn't a stock in my sector. So increasingly, I became interested in wanting to actually pull the trigger and manage money. So after a couple of years, I joined Investec Wealth uh, with Peter Armitage uh, to to work in their newly created alternative investments business. It so was around early 2006. That went very well for, for a few years until the 2008 financial crisis, where I think we, we all learned a few very hard lessons about liquidity and leverage that certainly I will never forget. Um, I then went on to to have another brief stint at Deutsche Bank on the sales side in 2011, uh, but was again reminded that fund management was actually uh, the better place to be from my personal perspective. So, uh, Investec very kindly took me back in 2012 in their private clients business, um, and I think uh, I probably would have stayed there for, for much longer, but uh, as it turns out, I was offered I guess the opportunity of a lifetime to, to head up the investment process at the newly launched Anchor Capital in early 2013. So I joined them in February of that year as, as their chief investment officer, uh, managing their Anchor BCI equity fund from inception in April of that year, um, and spent a very fulfilling five years at Anchor, uh, but ultimately made the call to, to take a break in mid-2018, a um, couple of months thereafter, I was approached by uh, an ultra-high net worth uh, individual who seeded me with assets substantial enough to make sense in a global mandate, um, and that was initially in a fairly informal manner as a kind of treasury manager of this investment company, but ultimately we launched uh, a new global flexible fund under the Prime Asset Managers and PIM Capital Umbrella in February of this year. So. Uh, That timing was obviously very interesting (laughs) just in time for the COVID crash. But uh, as it turns out, it's actually worked out quite well uh, so far this
0: year. Okay, super. Interesting background story there. And well, now in terms of the approach that you take, I mean, you're a long only fund manager. And be- off air, before we uh, started this conversation, I asked you whether there's any leverage in what you're, the fund that you're managing. And you said, no, no leverage. It's all delta one. Yes. But what is yep. your primary investing strategy? How do you manage this money that you, that you're looking after? So it's very much
1: a – I've had to refine my approach over the years and actually decide what it is that, uh, that, that you are. And I think as, a, as an investment manager, that's, that's an ever-evolving process. And I can definitely say it's not deep value. Um, I don't like to buy cheap assets uh, or, or poor quality assets cheaply and hope that they get a little bit more expensive. I, tr- I tried to find great quality companies. Originally, that always meant – something with a very high return on capital employed, fantastic free cash flow conversion, globally scalable business models, that all still applies. But I think increasingly what it also means is that a lot of those assets, um, if you if you find them early enough in their life cycle, they may not be all, the, all that profitable today. But if they become winning assets in time or winning businesses that can grab market share, um, you know, th- those can be extremely profitable. And if you think back to where Facebook was, Circa eight or nine years ago, it wasn 't a very profitable company. They were still trying to work out how they, how they would monetize their enormous user base, and you were buying it on on less than a one percent free cash flow yield at that time. so what increasingly what I try to look for nowadays is a combination of decent portfolio ballast that that can deliver good returns in the portfolio over time. Uh, but mixed in with that, you know, a handful of companies which can really change your life as a as an investor, as a client, um, uh, etc. Et you know, businesses that have the ability to go up uh, ten times plus over a over a ten year time horizon. Yeah, and and those are the companies that can really move the needle for you as an investor. So I'm happy to pay up for that stuff if I've got sufficient conviction that uh, you, you know I find the business in a in a, a market winning position where you've got an industry structure that can create winner-take-all economics. Um, so I think you've got to have a few of those in your portfolio. Um, and, and, yeah, companies that have the ability to really, really change the the fortunes of your overall portfolio.
0: Yeah, great. I mean, as you say, if you could have gotten in as an early investor in a Facebook or, or something like that, that has ultimately grown into its valuation, you've done exceptionally well. Are there any of those kind of stocks that you're willing to share just like two or three of them on this interview that you currently got your eye on that could maybe be the next, you know, the next Facebook or the next Google or Microsoft, for example?
1: Sure. Absolutely. I think a a fairly recent one, which has done very well in the portfolio that I own currently is, is a business called Roku. Um, Now for, It might not be a very familiar name in the South African context, but basically these guys are, um, it's a business which effectively retails contract manufactured uh, smart TVs largely in America. And it's more than one third of all smart TVs sold in America are a Roku branded TV. So they would partner with a Sense and uh, one or two others to to make Roku branded TVs. But the, the profits are not all in the device itself. Essentially, what they're op- uh, offering is an operating platform where you can consolidate viewers' different streaming accounts such as Netflix, uh, Disney+, Plus, into one easy to use interface where you basically buy the TV, you switch it on, and then all your accounts are there. Um, and, and where the user can also choose to fund their streaming um, TV via uh, the option to view ads. So it's not just paid. You can actually view your, uh, your, your streaming options via watching an advert that Roku would provide. Um, and so they basically are a play on what I would view as the inevitable shift of linear TV advertising budgets, which if you think about the size there, that's just, you know, just in the U S that's a $70 billion market size. Mm-hmm. And that's all going to go to towards streaming those ad budgets. Um, if you think about it, uh, increasingly people are cutting the cord on on linear TV and those advertisers can't reach their audience via linear TV anymore. So I think these guys are gonna be one of the inevitable winners in that trend going forward. Um, and uh, and I, yeah, that's a, it's a reasonably recent stock that I invested in. It was only about a couple of months ago at about $150 that I got in. And it's up about 75% since then. So I think wow. you know, what's happening here is they've got a massive growth in user base um, and the ad revenues are starting to follow suit in the most recent quarters. You've started to see very significant growth in their advertising revenue. Uh, and so I think the market is cottoning on to the fact that these guys will be one of the winners in in the in the shift from you know, terrestrial TV advertising toward uh, digital over the top advertising budgets.
0: Okay, very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. And now, in terms of managing risk, I mean, obviously you're going about you're doing a lot of hard work. You're trying to dig up these these possible diamonds, as it were, but. I mean, presumably, not all of them will necessarily be winners. So how do you manage your risk and your position sizing um, with each of the portfolio positions in in the fund that you manage? So I guess
1: that question or the answer to that question comes down to conviction and liquidity. Um, So what I would typically do is with stocks that have somewhat lower levels of liquidity than what might be ideal, um, a conviction position size and something that fitted that profile might be one or two percent. Whereas, if there's a share which uh, I can sell any amount of on any given day, I might have a you know a five to seven percent position size as a, as a reasonably high conviction uh, position. So there's the liquidity overlay, and then there's the conviction and and knowledge fundamental knowledge overlay. So for a stock which I think or a company which I think is showing a lot of promise. I might start a, a very small position as almost as a placeholder, whilst I'm still building up uh, knowledge on the company and, and conducting further research. And as as management executes and uh, and the thesis starts to play out, I might even look to add to that position in strength. Even if it, you know if if the stock is running, it's normally a good good news, not bad news that it's running. So, wouldn't automatically be cutting winners on the way up. I think it's a it's a key tenet of mine. Um, rather add to your winners than, than cut them. And, and at least if, if it blows up uh, and it turns out that it's not, a, uh, it's not what you thought it was, if you've started off as a small position size, um, it's not going to hurt you too badly. That's kind
0: yeah. of yeah, a key
1: way of thinking about risk management.
0: Yeah, But liquidity yeah. Is, is, is very important. For sure. With some of the other guests that I've interviewed on this podcast series that are long-only managers, not all of them are, but some of them are, um, one of the interesting points that's come up a couple of times is that they've had to rebalance portfolios when a stock becomes an outsized position. And that is actually a counterproductive thing. So we've got a classic yes. example of that in South Africa, which Nas with NASPAS, where yep. that stock has just outperformed the market by such a massive margin that over the years, it's become a bigger and bigger and bigger position in portfolios and all along, a lot of these traditional fund managers have been forced to actually cut their positions in NASPERS purely to reweight it back to a more sort of manageable number in terms of broader portfolio uh, positioning. And that's actually been hugely counterproductive and it's cost. And that is where money. So if you have a situation like that, you're looking for these big outlier companies that can potentially become, you know, as you say, the next Facebook or the next Google, um, what happens if, you, if one of these companies does become absolutely enormous and suddenly it occupies an incredibly large percentage of the money that you are, are looking after? Do you yes. stay the course or, or do you have to cut back to keep position sizes uh, a, stuck within a certain linear ladder structure in terms of the size of positions?
1: Yeah, I think there's got to be some pragmatism that comes into it and unfortunately this is where professional money managers are actually at a big disadvantage because they, they're they limited by mandate limitations at the end of the day and you can't allow something to become, uh, or you ordinarily wouldn't allow something to become say 30 or 40% of your portfolio where if you look at how Tencent has performed over the years, for example, it would have done that quite easily. Um, so. I think yeah. I wouldn't, as I said earlier, I wouldn't automatically cut positions as they're running, but uh, I would allow them to get quite large, possibly not into the double digits uh, percentage, um, but but certainly I'd allow them to become a meaningful chunk of uh, of, of the portfolio. But the reality is, um, in a in a CIS structure, you you can't allow position sizes to get too unwieldy.
0: Mm. Absolutely. And I mean, would you ever consider using options as a vehicle to protect some of those large positions that have become outsized so that you can still maintain the position, but also at least have some sort of options protection in the event that the, the position does turn against you for whatever reason? Yeah, so it's it's
1: something I've thought about a lot over the years. Um, and I always come back to this notion of keeping keeping things simple. Um, uh, I tend to find having dabbled with options a couple of times all that lands up happening is that you, or well, certainly in my case, I've paid away premium and, and with the benefit of hindsight, looked back and did and thought, well, that was quite an expensive exercise and I'm not sure what I've achieved. So generally speaking, certainly in, in, this, in this mandate, I haven't utilized options. I wouldn't rule it out, uh, but uh, but my starting point would be to keep things simple.
0: Okay. All right, super. Now, during March of this year, um, obviously, we know the COVID uh, crisis hit. Markets collapsed spectacularly. We saw the biggest drawdown since the financial crisis. Um, how did it go during that time? I mean, and, and, and to that point, how do you deal with major drawdowns in the account when they do happen?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, March was a real case in point. Eh? So, we, we couldn't have launched the fund at a worse possible time with the benefit of hindsight, I think. The, we got pretty much fully invested around the, the not fully invested, but yeah, heavily invested around the 18th or 19th of, uh, of February. Maybe it was the 20th, somewhere around there. And that was exactly around the peak of the market. And I think within a few weeks, we were down 30%. Um, wow. So that was quite a shock. And I guess uh, the actions that I took, I, I de-risked certain positions where there were question marks uh, around yeah, whether the company was facing a fundamental a real liquidity question mark that like there was one hotel stock in the portfolio where they were focused on the convention conferencing business. Now, it's like the worst possible business to own.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And until such time as they, they had actually communicated with the banks and, and you know, communicated with the market what the banks were saying about their liquidity position and having secured credit lines, before we knew that, it was just an unacceptable risk to be taking. So, so I did de-risk certain positions that fell into that category. But overall, we didn't cut the market, uh, the, the the portfolio weighting in equities. And uh, I guess fortuitously, we actually started up weighting around mid-March. Um, and what drove the thinking around that? I suppose I I was forced to take a view and say, listen, let's. Let's form some kind of a mental picture. I hate the word mental model or the phrase phrase mental model, but certainly a picture in our head as to how businesses should be valued in an environment once you've removed the solvency and liquidity risk that COVID shutdowns meant. In other words, once the Fed had stepped in and said, okay, guys, we're providing a backstop to the overall system by buying up uh, corporate credit, and so we're going to keep the taps of liquidity flowing, how then should you value a business, okay? And we, I think at that point in time, it became clear that 2020 was going to be a write-off for virtually, well, not all companies, but many, many companies and most companies in, in, in the overall global stock market exchanges. Um, so if you're wiping out a year's of earnings, uh, one year worth of earnings, what does that do to your valuation? And if you do a reasonable DCF with reasonable assumptions, you'll probably reach the conclusion in a, in a you know, with, with global... Uh, cost of capital considerations, I mean, dev- developed markets, you'll probably reach the conclusion that one year's worth of earnings is worth about 4% of the company's value, somewhere around there. Mm. So markets falling 30%, the view you had to take was not a case of saying, okay, 2020, is this a year that's a wipeout or not? It was more about what is the glide path going to be back to norm- normality? How long does that... Uh, profile looked like, provided you're in a business that's not permanently impaired where the balance sheet is overlevered, levered. Um, and I guess I got a lot of comfort from the actions of the of the Fed that they weren't going to let uh, a systemic failure take place. That was the, the one box to tick. Um, and the next box was to say, what is a reasonable expectation of the glide path back to normality? And even if you took the view that it was going to be 2022 or 2023 for a return to 2019 levels of profits. 30% down was too much, and so at that point in time, we, we actually started adding quite a lot of exposure to the portfolio, and that was uh, that, that was fortuitous because obviously you've seen what's happened subsequent to that, um, and and none of that math took into account the fact that the cost of capital globally collapsed. So when I talk about kind of a, you know, I, I had taken the view that the worst, a reasonable worst case was somewhere between a four and twelve percent impairment in the fair value of most companies that was warranted, warranted by what had happened. You know, that did not take into account what happened to interest rates. And that's obviously a positive. When you collapse your interest rates, you, uh, you increase the fair value of a company or your future earning stream. So we've obviously all seen what's happened subsequent to that. But yeah, that, that was, it was just having to form a picture in my head as to, you know, based on first principles, how should you be thinking about valuation? Forget that the world's gone moggy what is a reasonable assumption to make for how um, a company's fortunes might evolve over the next couple of years provided that uh, central banks have provided the backstop which they had
0: yeah okay super and that line of thinking's obviously worked out very very well for you so it has suppose, yeah. as you say unlucky that you went you started in the, uh, pr- pretty much when the market peaked in february But didn't go all in, luckily, so that you still had firepower in March to actually take advantage of that massive discount in the market when it came around. Correct. And that's presumably paying off quite handsomely for you now. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, super. You're listening to Talking With Traders, a podcast series brought to you by IG, a world leading online trading and investment provider. If you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes. In terms of this business, I mean, we know that there's ups and downs. You know, I've been in, in this game for a long time and it's it, it's obvious there's ups and downs you have winning streaks you have losing streaks you have tough times how do you manage to deal with all of that and how do you manage to stay even keeled through the ups and downs i mean obviously a time like march was extremely tumultuous and it was important to be able to keep a cool head as you obviously did during that time but how do you keep it how do you maintain an even keel through the ups and downs and through the good times and the bad times
1: I think the first thing is to understand that uh, it's a great question, <laughs> but the f- the first point is that uh, you've got to understand if you're an active manager with a given philosophy that you've chosen and a path that you've chosen as to how you want to do things, you need to understand that performance is cyclical, mm-hmm. and as a result, things are never as good or as bad as you think they are. Uh, so it's, and this is something, Goth, which I mean, I'm glad you touched on it because it's a... It's something that I've grappled with over the years, and I'm, I don't think one can, if you're fully honest with yourself, you can never say that you're always, that, that, that you've arrived, you know, this is a work in progress. And so you always have to remind yourself of this and keep coming back to that, that first principle of saying things are cyclical, um, and it's never going to be, uh, yes yeah, things are never at a median. There's always going to be highs and lows, and you've got to try and see through that. Um, I often find a, a coping mechanism is when things are really bad is to actually look back and yeah, look at your life and say, well, yes, this is tough. Uh, but what do I have that's going for me at the moment? I've got an amazing family, uh, kids that are doing well, uh, happy marriage. You know, these are like real, I wouldn't say basic stuff. Like what's important in your life and what's, mm. uh, what's keeping everything together. And uh, this is transient. It will pass. Um, and, and conversely, when things are going really well, just remind yourself that you, you're not always the genius that you think you are at the top
0: of a bull market. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite right. A great answer. Thanks. I love that answer, I must say. Now, in terms of the setups and the... um, well, not setups because that's the wrong term to, to, to use. But when you're looking at um, opportunities to invest in... I, I've asked a lot of my other guests about risk-to-reward ratio. But obviously, this yes. being... talking with traders, I know you're not a trader, you're an investor. So you don't necessarily straddle that that trader side of things. But risk to reward ratio still needs to be taken into consideration. What are you typically sort of looking for in terms of your, your, your win to loss ratio with the investments that you do make? And then second of all, a risk to reward ratio. I mean, we all know. Yes. Cutting losing trades is is, is important um, and letting your winners run is important. But how do you look at that? What are you looking for in terms of, of win-to-loss ratio and risk-to-reward ratio on your trades, your investment? Yeah. So I guess risk-reward,
1: I would try, I mean, conceptually, it's not something I would measure with every single trade. But when I'm looking at a new company to invest in, I guess what I'm thinking about is, you know what are the odds that I might land up with a stock being more than 15 to 20% down in, in a short space of time? Um, if it's if it's within that range, but there's a decent probability of it becoming a five to 10 bagger over 10 years, which is 20 to 20% compound per annum. Yeah, that'll very quickly wipe out the initial losses. So uh, for me, an acceptable equation would be something where my reasonable worst case scenario might be 15 to 20% loss within a couple of months uh but with a very good chance of becoming a, a multi-bagger like five to ten times over 10 years um that's something which uh, i'd be happy to accept um where do you find those sorts of things often you have to pay more than you are perhaps comfortable to pay but i'll just use an example to illustrate how much you can pay for for true compounders and and you know for, for many south africans it would be a a very a very common example. So 10 cents and, and by by extension NusPass, but I'll talk about 10 cent because that was the real value creator in NusPass's life. I mean, yeah, you've got a a globally scalable business model, albeit I suppose we can talk about them mainly operating in China, but a very, very big addressable market. A business that has the ability to deploy capital at a thirty percent plus return and reinvest the earnings at a similar rate. I mean, that's really what makes you a fortune. Mm. Where you can find those businesses that at scale can deliver very high rates of compound, of return on capital and reinvest at similar rates. So it's all about the, the return on incremental capital employed. And if you look at Tencent, just, to, just to look at the numbers. Over the last 15 years, this business has compounded its earnings at 45% per annum. Okay? Mm. Uh, cumulative, that's 25,000%. Now, you might ask yourself, you know, what PE multiple could investors have paid 15 years ago and still resulted in a 10% annualized return over that 15-year time period? So, that, yeah, you know, which is like, that's quite a reasonable uh, return in in, in the global, t- global sense. And the answer is you could have paid a PE on twenty on 2005 earnings of 2,788. <laughs> it just gives you an idea of, of, of compounding and, and the maths of what actually is expensive when you have a business that can compound at superior rates. Mm. Of course, back in 2005, the trailing PE was 33, and now it's perhaps a bit north of 40. But you know, the net result is that, that you've had a business where if you put $10,000 into it 15 years ago, you'd be a multimillionaire. Mm-hmm. In, in dollar terms, and, and that's yeah, that's why I refer to those companies that they probably look too expensive on year one earnings. Um, but if, if you can find those winners and just hold on to them, and that's it's easier said than done um, it, to, to hold on to those winners because it typically is a bumpy ride along the way.
0: Yeah, um, it, it is. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, so I guess that's um, that's the risk reward uh, when looking at winners average win uh, or, or loss rate. It's not something I measure quantitatively for me I guess it's more important that uh, the stocks that are winners really count in your portfolio and the ones that are losers hopefully are small enough to not hurt you too badly and that's where it comes back to my original tenet of you know when you're whilst you're still building conviction start off at a reasonably small position size and as management executes and the business executes you can actually add to your position size um, as your fundamental knowledge grows, as the business executes, as you get more comfortable with the investment thesis, um, whereas if it's a, a new stock that you've just added uh, and it blows up in your face, if you've only started with a one position
0: position, it hasn't killed you. Um, so that's that's a reasonable way of thinking about it, I guess. Yeah, that's fair enough. And I guess, although it's you know you're an investor as opposed to a trader, the con the the concept is still very much applicable. Is what you're saying is you add to your winners, you don't yeah. add to your losers. In fact, you cut your losers when they're still correct. Staying. And that's yeah. that's that's a, a very good philosophy and a very important philosophy for everyone to remember who's listening to this podcast. It's it's one of the key ingredients to success in this game is is keep your losses small and try and add to your winners as much as you can to that extent sean why do you think it is that so many retail participants in the market i suppose this is, is is maybe applicable to those playing in leveraged instruments more so but it's well known and it's well publicized in fact that retail traders amateur traders typically do lose money i mean the statistics mm. are that about, and I'm specifically talking about um, those in geared instruments now, so CFDs yes. and in futures and the like, that around about seventy-five to eighty-five percent will will lose money. Yeah. What do you think it is? Why why do you believe it is that that such a vast majority of people lose money when trying to trade the markets? Emotions,
1: lack of control over your emotions, which I suppose leads you to possible time, like in March this year, or just to simply make the pain go away. And if you're asking yourself the question, if you're about to press the button, hit enter on a trade that immediately will make you feel, oh, thank goodness, the pain has gone away. If you have that feeling in your stomach after you've sold, you've made the wrong decision. Mm. That's from experience. That to me is just how it's always gone. Um, If you're making a trade to make the pain go away, you've probably made a mistake um and obviously conversely it's you know, getting involved too late uh so I, I think emotional responses and and you would have heard from that you would have heard that from many many people that you've interviewed i'm sure
0: yeah.
1: uh oh and then of course leverage <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> most
1: traders will, yeah many traders will lose money because of leverage
0: yeah
1: yeah they think Just that their exposure though. is the margin not the actual underlying exposure that they've taken that's the worst possible mistake to make yeah. your investment yeah. is not the margin your investment is your position size
0: Yeah, yeah. On on that, and I'm going to just digress a little bit, Chabot, but I think it's an interesting question to ask you at this point and leading on from that one. You know, so often I'm approached by um, retail wannabe traders and they they come with these wild, ambitious numbers. They want to try and make 50% or 70% per annum with a small account so that they can live off the profits. I mean, it's, yes. and, and, and every time my answer is the same, it's just, you've got to get a grip with reality. You, you're totally not, not realistic in your expectation. Now you, Sean, are an experienced money manager. You've done this your whole career. You know how to do it. What would yeah. you therefore consider a good year in, in, in your business? And if you could sort of compound at a steady, steady rate for the next 10, 20 years, what would you look at as a, a good annual compounded return?
1: I think a great year is 30%. Like last year, I had similar numbers. Um, But again, the market was up, you know, something of that order. Um, What is sustainable? I mean, one needs to look at the numbers. Yeah, like you're probably looking at single digits, but if if I could do 10% in dollars sustainably, I'd be very pleased.
0: Yeah. And that's it, right? The compounding adds up over time. So 10% yeah. I mean, compounded. If you take inflation
1: out, yeah, it's a lot. I mean, if you take inflation out of that, which the Federal Reserve hopes to get to 2%, you know, you're talking about compounding your capital at 8% real. That's a big number. It means you're going to double, more than double every 10
0: years. Yeah. yeah. So in, in real
1: terms. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I think anything else, any, anything much north of that, I think is starting to get into the realm of either unrealistic or expectations as to what beta is going to pay you. In other words, overall markets
0: or or simply a little bit too much risk taking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's it. And that's why I wanted to ask you the question, because I know there are a lot of people hmm. listening to this podcast who are you know, trying to do this for themselves and often have unrealistic expectations. That's why I think it's important to ask somebody who actually has done this professionally you know and to you know
1: and part of the problem is is you've you've had many new investors that have come in in 2020 and and post the covid crash in march you've seen a number of uh, tech companies and, and smaller companies double treble go up three or four times you know it's uh, and in a way that's not healthy because it's created an expectation that this is a normal year that's completely abnormal
0: yeah <laughs> it's uh <laughs> Yeah, there are as lots you know. of, there are lots of robin hooders who, who will are still yet to learn that lesson i think down yeah. down the line yeah um consistency is very key in this business in trading and investing uh, so to that extent and you i've known you for a while you're a pretty consistent person from your personality but yeah i think it also needs to be echoed in your life in general so how do you manage to strike that balance uh, of uh, consistency in your work and in your life? How do you make yes. it, How do you balance it all out? It's hard, but I think uh, I guess my ample answer would be a, a really simple
1: one. Um, and it comes down to exercise. Huh? <laughs> mm. uh, and it's something I haven't actually always been all that disciplined about. I've had to learn it in recent years. Uh, but I generally find that my, my life feels out of balance when I haven't done enough physical exercise. So that I think is critical. Uh, you actually think a whole lot better when you fit as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I've gotten better at it over the years through necessity, I guess. I, I even finally learned to to run during lockdown. I've always previously been interested in swimming, so I'm a quite a keen swimmer, but couldn't do that at the gyms when we had lockdown. So I learned to, to start jogging in the mornings. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm a big believer that uh, uh, that's
0: really important
1: in terms of keeping you on a level keel.
0: Mm, healthy body is a healthy mind. Yeah. 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 And to that end, what does an average day look like for you? And when are you doing your market research I and mean, do you do a lot of after hours work? Um,
1: are you... Yeah, I'm reading a lot of, uh, I guess, an average day would be a lot of reading of financial reports. Um, I do build a lot of financial models and companies where I'm trying to understand what the return equation, both for the company itself and for shareholders might look like if it evolves to the scale that I might expect. So, you know, testing of assumptions and uh building out of models. Um, you know, I listen to a lot of uh, company reports um overnight. Obviously in the you know many companies that I'm invested in are in the US. So they would have conference calls and earnings calls that I'll listen into. So I I'm reading and uh I'm doing a lot of that type of work pretty much all day during the day and then after hours as well, much to the delight of my wife.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think you and I were having this conversation before the podcast started to record and we both have wives to say, we sometimes we're maybe not as present as we ought to be. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, if you had a, a, a youngster coming to you, Sean, and said they're interested in getting into the market, they want to make a career either as a trader or as an investor, hedge fund manager, long-only manager, whatever, what two or three bits of advice would you give to a youngster starting out now?
1: Sure. Um, when it comes to investing money, I would s- certainly start as soon as, and as, as young as you possibly can. Um, no time is too early enough Uh, invest real money so don't run a paper portfolio you need to feel what it's like to to lose money if you do lose money Mm. so invest invest real money uh, but make your initial bets or positions small enough to not blow you up you don't want it to take you out of the game uh, and scare you away completely Uh, don't be tempted to cut your winners too early or when your spreadsheet tells you to so you know like we've said earlier the real winners can run for years Mm. It can actually change your life, I'd say. Yeah. Um, and getting back in once you've sold, always feel harder. It's a tougher decision. Uh, and then, yeah, uh, try to understand the business underneath the ticker. Don't just buy a line on the screen. Although I think, yeah, as you would know, technical analysis is is, is also a great tool and, and can be very, very useful. But try to understand the business as well. Mm. And finally, I'd say stay humble. Eh? <laughs> this is a game that can, can easily... Um, Create big personalities, and there are lots of personalities in this game. But it's it's also nice to come across people who it hasn't gone to their heads, and they've they've remained grounded. Yeah, I think that's it's something that that we all struggle with. But yeah, one one has to to stay humble. I would
0: say. Yeah, no, absolutely. This market does have a, a habit of dishing up a dose of humble pie just as soon as you think you're too big for your boots. When, you, so. when
1: you've got it all worked up, that's when it happens. Yeah. <laughs> or you think you've got it all worked up.
0: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. As you said earlier, we're always learning. It's a constant work in progress, this business. For sure, and, and in terms of trading or investing books, are there any, again, two or three books that you would recommend any, uh, anybody should read if they're interested in this business of investing mm. and trading?
1: I'll tell you what I've recently read, which I thoroughly enjoyed, and it's very accessible for, for anybody, really. It's got, a, it's got a great writing style. It's uh, Morgan Housel's Psychology of Money. Uh, it's just really practical money and life advice. It's not a trading book per se. I wouldn't even call it an investing book, but it's, uh, it's a book about money and, and life, I suppose. Yeah, it's, I think it's a really good starting point for anybody. Okay. You can always go into something a little bit more channeled from there.
0: Yeah, uh, but he's, he's got a
1: great style of writing, and uh, like I said, it's very accessible.
0: Mm, okay, that's interesting. That one hasn't come up on, on any of the podcast interviews that – i've done with people so it's you know, a lot of the same books tend to come up over and over so it's quite interesting to get a different one like that so i'll yeah. certainly look that up are there any Check others spring to, to mind immediately
1: um nothing at the top of
0: my head i read
1: uh, the intelligent investor by benjamin graham years ago but i'm pretty sure that uh, had i stuck to the knitting that he suggested i would have been a value investor and that's certainly not what i am yeah. But uh, but perhaps for, for ground, groundwork knowledge, it's not a bad start as well.
0: Okay. All right. Super. And last thing, Sean, your fund, the Sierra Global Fund. Um, yes. It's, it, you, you mentioned that your seed capital was from a very large, high net worth individual. But this fund is open to anybody to invest in. Am I right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So it is dollar denominated. We are in the process of, or well, we will be, I guess, within the next few months, Applying for a um, an SA feeder fund, so where South African domiciled um, individuals will be able to put rands into a locally denominated fund that invests into the Sierra fund. But as it stands right now, any investor can also invest dollars that they've got offshore into the fund, um, and that's a minimum of uh, ten thousand US dollars into the into the retail class, and that charges a a one percent basic management fee per annum. Um, And then 10% of our performance over a a hurdle rate of uh, U.S. three-month T-bills plus uh, 500 basis points per annum. So the the reason we went with an absolute benchmark is that it is a flexible mandate. Um, It's not equity only, so we can adjust the the asset allocation as we see fit. But, I mean, it will will have a high equity weighting over time. That's the best way of thinking of it.
0: Okay, super. So how would, um, you know, is is there a way that a listener to this podcast can go and find out more about it? Have you got a website or something?
1: We do have a website. I'm not sure if it's uh, if the link is all that operational at the moment, but it's primeinvestments.co.za. You can go and check it out there. Um, Alternatively, you can get in touch with me at uh, sashton at pimcapital.mu and I'll be very happy to send you any information
0: that you need. Okay, super. And you're also on Twitter. Um, and I guess that's another yes. way that people could get hold of you as well. Look up Sean Ashton yes. on Twitter. Fantastic. Well, Sean, it's been a great pleasure speaking to you. I, I really am very grateful for your time. It's been interesting. and I've certainly learned a couple of interesting things in every one of these podcasts kind of teaches me a new little nugget of information as well. And I've certainly got a couple of nuggets that I've written down while I've been talking to you here that I'm going to go away with. So thanks very much. I really do appreciate it. And I look forward to catching up with you again sometime in the future. Thanks so much, great chatting. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of talking with traders brought to you by IG, a world leading CFD provider. We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to the series by clicking the subscribe button on your favorite app. Till next time.